with over 25 years of experience integrating mental health and spirituality, the author of Reclaiming Authenticity, When Ancestors Weep, and Redeeming the Bereaved. Here is Dr. James Houck. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Happy Friday, wherever you are in the world at this time. Welcome to Reclaiming Authenticity, helping you find your courage to reclaim that which has always been in you. Very glad to be with you here today and every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, noon Pacific Standard Time, and any other time in between. I am Dr. James Hauk, and if you would like more information about me or to leave me your comments about today's show, please do. And uh, all you have to do is just visit the website. That uh, is www.bbsradio.com backslash reclaiming authenticity that's www.bbsradio.com backslash reclaiming authenticity and if you would like to call in during this hour and join in on the conversation that number is 888-627-6008 that's 888-627-6008 and i'll be taking your calls after the break a little later on in the show and uh just in case you can't spend a whole hour with me or if you want to go back and uh, perhaps hear uh, other podcasts uh that uh you, you are now able to do that because these broadcasts have been podcasted for a while now, and so I invite you to go back and to um, listen to any shows that you might have missed, and um, or just get caught up on what you couldn't stick around for at any given time. Now, uh, uh, all of these uh, podcasts are available for download on either Audible or Amazon Music, and you can even listen uh, to the show on Station One of iHeartRadio. Well, if you just so happen to be tuning in for the very first time, just want to say welcome to the show. Each and every week, these broadcasts are dedicated to the integration of our spirituality and our mental health. And, you know, it's it's quite interestingly that the, the, the call to live a more authentic life is is really becoming increasingly poignant these days. You know, it seems like that everywhere we turn, yeah, genuineness and authenticity are are such rare characteristics among people who are searching for palpable substance, shall we say, in relationships. You know, I talk to many people who are just they don't want to play games in relationships, whether they're dating or they're just casual relationships, friendships. It's just they they want a realness to it. They want genuineness and authenticity. Uh, but uh, nowadays, society is rapidly conditioning generations, I should say, to question the motives and desires of others just like never before. Uh, for example, uh, the personal image is at an all-time fever pitch as one reality show after another presents us with really anything but reality. And uh, daily, 
uh, we're being sold this message to that uh, in order to be the most socially acceptable person, um, you know, you have to find the most expensive program, or you have to get so many likes, or, or how many postings, and so forth. And uh, it, it seems as though that the more drama and the more tears, the the better the front page story. You know, in other words, who can outshock who? Who can accumulate more toys and points than anyone else? Who has more guile, more trickery? Who's more cunning, either by hook or by crook? And, and uh, you know, cutthroat politics and religious scandals have, have saturated our daily news as bewildered people in, in coffee shops and bars look at each other wondering, you know, can it get any worse? But instead of taking people at face value, we're often now accustomed to ask, okay, what's the catch? And perhaps as a result of a number of humiliating and painful experiences, we avoid any further investigation of, say, the physical, emotional, or spiritual parts of ourselves in relationships. It's like the last thing we want to do is really take a look at ourselves. And, you know, as a result, you know, out of our own brokenness, we may feel that we just cannot risk being a victim to yet another example of, let's say, fraud or trickery or dishonesty. And the the past physical, psychological, emotional, and spiritual wounding has just simply taken too much out of us, leaving us to believe that others simply conspire to take advantage of our vulnerability. And yet, isn't this the dilemma we face? To, on one hand, strive for genuineness and authenticity in our relationship really demands a level of vulnerability from us. In other words, before we can expect and appreciate uh, authenticity from another person, we're forced to confront our own inconsistent and inauthentic ways. Well, one of my um, favorite uh, family psychotherapists and author, uh, Virginia Satir, she lived uh, early 1900s and died late 1900s. She kind of sums up this sentiment very nicely. I, I just love this quote. She says, I want to love you without clutching. I want to appreciate you without judging. I want to join you without invading invite you without demanding, leave you without guilt, criticize you without blaming, and help you without insulting. If I can have the same from you, then we can truly meet one another. Well, as idealistic as this kind of human interaction sounds, genuineness and authenticity in relationships are tangible, but it does indeed require kind of a lifelong commitment to our self-discovery and honesty about who we are with, let's say, all of our warts and gifts and phobias and strengths and graces and everything else. And unfortunately, this kind of commitment is a price many people consider that's just too high to pay and not worth my time. I mean, wouldn't it be easier, shall we say, to be satisfied with the status quo and, and go with the flow and, and just simply not question? I mean, wouldn't we be better off? Of course, you know, that might be the, the frequently traveled road, but let's not deceive ourselves. 
this this inner desire that we have for genuineness and authenticity and relationships with ourselves and others and God is not going to go away. In fact, I think it's something that continues to grow in us. That cry, that hunger, that ache just intensifies the more and more it's denied. And moreover, that internal longing to be more authentic and truer to ourselves, yes, will get stronger. I mean, really, the question is, how much more sleep do we want to keep losing night after night? I mean, how many more times are we going to blame others for what we don't have? Well, how was your heart today? I, I hope your heart is well. I hope you are well, and I hope that if you're struggling today, that you will find the rest and peace and comfort you need. So, welcome to today's show, Transcending Humanities Mental Scaffolding. And I'm certain that at one point or more in our lives, we've walked past a construction site, and we've noticed the scaffolding, okay, in its various shapes and forms, and sometimes it's made out of metal, and and uh, depending on what's being constructed, sometimes, um, you know, bamboo is used for its strength and durability. And we just kind of stand there, and we marvel at the way, you know, these construction workers just kind of shimmy up and down this apparatus with the greatest of ease. You know, they just kind of stand on the two boards that are stretched across and they uh, are, are building or renovating, you know, whatever needs to be done and just no fear. And, uh, you know, this is kind of, you know, from a distance, we see how scaffolding kind of obscures, you know, what's being built or how something is being improved. And uh, interestingly, I don't know if we've ever looked at it this way, but it Despite its strength, you know this this scaffolding, this structure is only temporary, you know, because it needs to be replaced by something stronger and more permanent. And as soon as the building or renovations are complete, the scaffolding comes down piece by piece, and we're left with something better. And we're like, oh, that's what they were building. Now it becomes clear. Or, you know, they really did a nice job in cleaning up whatever the building, you know, whatever it needed to be done. You know, it's just, like I said, it was kind of hidden from the scaffolding. But once the scaffolding comes down, it's like, okay, now we see it. Yeah, that is definitely something better. Well, this metaphor of scaffolding is often true for our very lives. We often use scaffolding in the way of, let's say, rituals or ceremonies in order to build something better, more effective in our lives, such as the rituals involved in weddings or baptisms or bar or bath mitzvahs, or graduations and funerals and etc. And oftentimes these observances <coughs> and traditions do not necessarily mark an endpoint to our lives, but rather they mark a beginning, a commencement, a place at which points to us to something better, something larger than ourselves, and often filled with mystery and uncertainty. And every day we have the opportunity to see and experience something new. And when we experience 
such events, we often become transformed into something that we've never experienced before. We come away with a, a greater appreciation, a greater awareness, a greater liking, or just a, a depth in our gratitude, and so forth. But we have to be able to dismantle the so-called mental scaffolding, which has brought us to that moment, and experience ourselves from a more open, teachable, life-giving space within ourselves, instead of clinging to the form or the structure, hoping to recreate the memories and the transformation that we once experienced. It's, it's kind of like the old saying, you know, we keep doing the same things over and over again, expecting different results. Okay, what are we clinging to? Are we clinging to the form or are we clinging to something better? But does there ever come a point when we find ourselves clinging to the form of something temporary and totally miss the fact that there is something better just waiting for us to see it? Now, there's a wonderful book out there. I don't know if you've ever seen the title or if you've ever written it. It's written by a man named Westerhoff. And the title is this, Will Our Children Have Faith? Will Our Children Have Faith? And um, pretty much, let me just sum up the book for you. Uh, he wrote about the shaking paradigms of religious education. In fact, uh, in passing on one's generation's faith to the up-and-coming generations. In other words, simply put, the old ways don't cut it anymore. So, therefore, will our children have faith. Well, I have to tell you, the number of times I've discussed this very topic with others who insist that in order to ensure children and grandchildren, just to ensure the fact that they will have faith, the, the onus is on the older generations to model what right or correct faith looks like. You know, that if, if they'll just keep doing the things the way we did things, they'll be fine. You know, it's, it's kind of like hoping that the up-and-coming generations will just be content to avail themselves to the way things have always been and done. You know, it's, it's this cookie-cutter expectation. Like, in other words, if it was good for us, it's going to be good for them. And this, no pun intended here, and this recipe has always stifled creativity and growth and vision and depth of spiritual transformation in succeeding generations. And like I said, I've had many discussions with people about this book and this very topic, Will Our Children Have Faith? And, and this is, you know, in, in the, the discussion, this is where I raise the question, why do we assume that future generations have to fit another person's mold in order to find faith? Why do we assume that future generations have to fit another person's mold in order to find faith? I would rather begin with the fact that every generation has faith because it's already in them. But that they go about enriching that faith and growing in their relationship with others and God or the divine differently than what's been done before. And I, I believe that every generation for centuries has done this, but every generation has to have the wisdom to release the outward forms, so to speak, the, this mental scaffolding, okay, and focus inward where genuine transformation 
and transcendence occurs. I mean, otherwise, what is so desperately being clung to because of the way it's always been, well, the more it's going to start to crumble beneath our feet and slip through their fingers. And perhaps, you know, I thought about this just a little bit more, you know, prior to this broadcast. But uh, perhaps this is the purpose behind, you know, one of the Ten Commandments, you know, that thou shalt not make unto yourself any graven images of God. And um, when you think about it, it's, it's true. It's like perhaps God knew that, first of all, there's just no way to capture the very essence of God in a single image, even though we might try. And secondly, we as human beings, we would get stuck on the form and image of God and totally miss the point that God is spirit. God is vast. God is without limitations. And God is beyond our time and space understanding. But at any rate, future generations discover their faith and find new transformative ways to connect with God with a sense of meaning and purpose. But it's going to be vastly different than anything that we have seen. I mean, let's take, for example, religious and spiritual rituals and ceremonies and observances, and let's just say that they've always been an outward sign of an inward transformative grace. In other words, what we do on a daily basis is an extension of what's going on inside of us. And these rituals, ceremonies, observances, and so forth always have always pointed us to something greater, something better, something that cannot be contained by our mental scaffolding. We may begin with the form and structure of the rituals and the ceremonies and the proper way to do things, but we must also at some point transcend those things to see the greater lesson, the greater transformative work. Um, and let me toss out another example here. I, uh, I've, I've met and counseled many people who, if it were not by the grace of God and their sponsors and various addiction recovery support group meetings, they would have never been able to achieve and maintain their sobriety or whatever it is that they're trying to overcome for many, many years. And I often wonder, when people stand up in the, these meetings and they say, hello, my name is, and I'm an alcoholic, or I'm a compulsive gambler, or I'm a shockaholic, or sex addict, or whatever it is, if, let's say, by some chance, the people who attend these very worthwhile support group meetings, if by some chance... Are they able to see themselves as something more? I mean, have they been transformed from what once was? And have they transcended into something far greater and more life-giving than a label that is so easy to identify? You know, I, I talked to a couple of friends who uh, are been in AA for 30-plus years, and they constantly see themselves as once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. And on one hand, I do appreciate that. I really do. Okay, I understand the program and so forth. 
But I keep asking them, at what point can you get beyond that? At what point do you think, you know, not that you're okay to have a drink, but that you begin to describe yourself in, let's say, a healthier way or a more life-giving way instead of what you were and that's all you're ever going to be, you know? And again, that leads us some pretty uh, incredible depth conversations, I should say. Well, perhaps before we dismantle these mental and or spiritual scaffoldings, shall we say, perhaps we ought to ask ourselves just a few questions, you know, and and again, this will take us inward uh, to really see, you know, how the scaffolding or the rituals or different things that we do, the form, really point us to something greater, okay? So the first one is, how does this structure or this form serve me? Okay, how does this structure or this form serve me? Because after all, it they, they they do, they do serve a purpose. It's just going to be there's going to come a time when we're going to need to transcend these. But we often cling to these. Like I, if I let go of the form, I don't have anything else. And for that matter, the the second point is just exactly what is the form? What is this structure? And where has it taken me? Is it something that I need to continue with? Or is it something I need to integrate and place that structure within me to see the the greater good, to see the depth where it can really take me? And lastly, you know, how you know is it nourishing? How are these forms and structures nourishing my inner life? Or have we become accustomed to the familiarity of it? in which we, you know, let's be honest here, maybe we've become complacent, where we don't have to think anymore. We can just do, and well, that's good enough. But if we really want to see that inner growth in our lives, we're going to have to let go of those structures and those forms, because as good as they are, they're limited, because they're temporary, they point us in, in a direction of something greater, but in order to get to the something greater, more life-giving, we have to let go of it and be, be led you know, by something uh, more in-depth. So, therefore, um, let us not assume that by desiring you know, such a, like, shall we say, a psycho-spiritual transformation, in other words, how we draw close to God. How do we live out that relationship with ourselves and others and God on a daily basis means that we will automatically have a life-changing encounter, you know, that comes with all the bells and whistles and miracles. I mean, we may and we may not. In fact, the opportunity to be transformed by God might occur when we least expect it. Uh, Another favorite story of mine actually uh, comes from uh, a story recounted by uh, the friar Thomas of Chalano. And uh, he lived in the 1200s. I think he died around 1265. And uh, the story is regarding uh, Francis of Assisi and his encounter with a man with leprosy. And little did Francis know that when he transcended or went beyond his personal limitations and assumptions. He went from seeing a miserable wretch of a leprous man to embracing 
a person full of dignity and worth. In other words, he could no longer hold back the spiritual transformation that was unfolding in him. So then here's the story. When Francis was a young man, and after he had decided that he did not wish to be a cloth merchant like his father, after his dream of knighthood had been crushed by a prolonged illness, and, and before he discerned his vocation in life, it's told that Francis was walking along the road on the outskirts of Assisi with his friend Leo, when he thought he heard a bell in a distance. It wasn't the bright sound of a church bell, but it was rather a coarse, flat tone like a cowbell. And Francis was frightened by this sound because it was unpleasant, yet it was familiar. And to his surprise, the sound started to come closer and closer and get louder and louder. And... Almost immediately, his friend Leo realized what that sound meant. Let's get out of here, Francis, Leo cried. But Francis, not knowing exactly why, stood his ground. Well, Leo pleaded again, but Francis, now trembling, wouldn't run. And suddenly, over the hill, just ahead, there appeared a deformed figure, with a clanging bell around his neck. And at this point, Francis's heart pounded. His, his nostrils burned with a, a pungent smell of rotting flesh. The figure, even though still some distance away, tried to wave him off, but Francis didn't move. This man's a leper, he thought to himself. I've always been repulsed by the sight of lepers and how much I have feared their dreaded contagion. And the leper kept coming closer. And finally he said, Have you not heard my bell? Do you know I am forced to wear this bell to warn you that a leper is approaching? Well, Francis remained motionless, and he even tasted his own fear as he swallowed. And suddenly... Filled with the strength which, you know, he didn't know where that came from. Uh, Francis ran toward the leper, now more frightened than he. And surprisingly, Francis embraced the leper, kissed him on his festering cheek, and he, he just, he cried aloud, Brother leper, forgive me. Forgive me for neglecting you. Then, for just a split of a moment. He seemed to wear a crown of thorns and to bleed from his wounds in his hands, his feet, and his sides. He looked at Francis with love. And then, just as suddenly, the leper vanished from sight, leaving Francis weeping on the silent road. And it was at that moment Francis found his calling. Can you and I look past the form in order to see and take on something far greater and more life-giving? Well, I tell you what, I would really love to hear your heart and what's on your heart about this subject. So, again, if you would like to call in, that number is 888-627-6008. 
And I'll be taking your calls after this break. So again, you are listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. I'm your host, Dr. James Houck. I'll be back with you in one minute. Welcome back. I am Dr. James Houck, and you are listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. I just want to give you a little heads up about next week's show. I'll be uh, sharing uh, the ways in which we in the past have uh, often measured our mental and spiritual growth in our lives, but how we are called to transcend these developmental parameters. So it's kind of a continuation of today's broadcast, but we're going to go a little bit deeper with this. Okay, so I invite you to turn in, uh, tune into, not turn into, but tune into uh, next Friday as we continue looking at how we transcend, uh, just how we measure our spirituality and our mental health. Well, earlier in the show, I was talking about the fact that through ordinary events and experiences and rituals and observances, we often become transformed into something that we've never experienced before, you know, just in like a blink of an eye, very fast, just like I shared right before the break, the story of Francis and the leper, you know, something that had repulsed him for all those years or, or for the most of his life up until that moment. He then started to see the beauty that dwelled within. Okay. But... Um, you know, we have to be able to dismantle these so-called mental scaffoldings which we build and we stand upon. And um, quite frankly, uh, those structures have brought us to where we are in our lives and, and experience ourselves from a more open and teachable, life-giving space within us. But how many times do we cling to these the scaffolding, this form, hoping to recreate the memories and the transformation that we once experienced, such as always going back to the same place year after year, the same vacation, the same people, hoping that, well, things will be different, you know, and, you know, it's like we keep doing the same things over and over again, and we expect different results, okay? Well, when considering transformation and transcendence, I, I always used to wonder 
just what comes first? Is it transcendence? Is it, you know, transformation? It's kind of a, a chicken and egg question. And, um, you know, do we experience transformation first? And then does that move us that do or, do or allow us to transcend our surroundings and limitations and personal boundaries? Or maybe it's like Francis, when we transcend these limitations, is it when we're doing that, that we are transformed? Well, regardless of whether we have experienced a, a spiritual transformation before transcending our boundaries, which could be self-imposed or otherwise, or we have experienced transcendence prior to spiritual transformation, I believe the two are intertwined and connected. You know, this, uh, the spiritual relationship always reminds me of a tango. You know, which has been described as this energetic, passionate, and playful dance filled with artistic expression. And in, in both modern and traditional tango styles, once the dancers have mastered the moves involved, they can spend endless hours just lost in this vibrant dance. Okay? And in fact, the, the beauty of watching the tango is the fluidity of the dance. You know, two dancers magically become one on the dance floor. Uh, I have tried to master the tango. Sorry, I am very much a beginner at heart. Uh, my feet are very heavy. There is no way that I am light on my feet. <laughs> but uh, I'll keep trying, okay? But um, a tango is a nice way to take a look at the whole uh, transcendence uh, transformation or the transformation and transcendence. It's just you can't have one without the other. I'm convinced of it. The two go hand in hand, okay? And so it is a both and phenomenon that I think is initiated by God that requires an active dance partner, shall we say. And while it's true that the ongoing transformation comes in God's timing, we're going to have to avail ourselves in what uh, John Wesley referred to as the means of grace. And what he meant by this phrase, the means of grace, is that once we've experienced God's Spirit in our lives, we therefore live in the light of this Spirit on the daily basis as we devote ourselves to, say, practices such as prayer and fellowship and outreach and uh, meditative reflection or the study of Scripture or spiritual ceremonies and participation in the sacraments or, or going to weekly worship or other acts of devotion. Okay? And when we open ourselves up, sometimes simply by just showing up to hear God more clearly in our lives, God extends this grace for us to be further transformed. And as we transform, we, we transcend previous limitations, which prepares us for further transformation and transcendence and more transformation and more transcendence and, and so forth. Now, transformation in the, the sphere of mental health and spirituality shouldn't be limited to a purely psychological endeavor. Okay? In, in fact, uh, few in society attempt to educate the masses, shall we say, into believing that the empirical scientific method of, of knowing God is the only verifiable means. You know, um, you put it another way, that the only way of 
proving the legitimacy of a person's relationship or experience with God is to only be confirmed through quantitative or measurable data. But moreover, the, the subjective topic of spirituality is therefore often ridiculed or it's dismissed by science since it does not fit so neatly into certain criteria. And yet, there are legitimate ways to measure spirituality's effects on how people live out this awakening of their souls. And I believe the key to this endeavor is that in reclaiming our authenticity is that we must also realize that our soul has also a journey to make in terms of finding peace and satisfaction, even its home in an inauthentic world. Uh, for example, you know, uh, a 13th century theologian and scholar, Bonaventure, he made note that the word for journey in Latin is itinerarium, which means an itinerary or a plan, uh, a journey in general, or making a pilgrimage to, let's say, the Holy Land. And what's important to note is that this itinerarium always expresses an action. Uh, It expresses a plan or a prayer of our heart and our soul and our mind searching for God. And as a result, Bonaventure, he emphasized that no person can be happy unless they transcend or rise above their own self-interest. And that's a key understanding. No person can be happy unless they transcend or rise above their own self-interest. And and furthermore, transcendence is only possible with God's help, which is available to all who seek it from their heart. Uh, They seek it in their heart in fervent prayer, and it flows unforced from a desire to see others experience the same thing. So, as previously mentioned, drawing close to God, even having the desire to draw close to God, is, the best way I can put it, risky. Okay? It's risky, because perhaps we fear we just might discover that we do not necessarily have God all figured out. I mean, at first blush, shall we say, you know, God just might not be for us who we want God to be, or behave for us. I mean, we think we know God, but we don't. We assume things to be a certain way, but in the end, when we call upon the Lord, as I always say, get ready, strap yourself in, and hold on tight. You know, having the courage to know God beyond the limits of our senses really shatters whatever man-made scaffolding that we've kind of built around God. In fact, as we are reclaiming our authenticity, you know, this this shattering, shall we say, or this dismantling, um, you know, is of our of our preconceived ideas of God is certainly inevitable. I mean, the mind and and of course our entire being undergoes a a shaking or a shattering or a transformation in every conceived form, because these perceptions only represent a very, very, very limited understanding of who God really is. In fact, 
when we get right down to it, our human language, more often than not, greatly limits our ability to explain what God has touched in us. We just, we lack the words. We don't know how to talk about it. We may not know how to draw about it. We may not know how to put music to it. It's just a limitation because it is just, it goes beyond our ability sometimes to be able to do these things. But you know, personally, I, I don't believe God shows up in our lives by accident. You know, in fact, I, I you know, uh, I believe that, that God loves the use of irony. And so too does God love to show up in the ordinariness of our lives. You know, when we're not used to seeing the hand of God in our lives, we often marvel at the times when God becomes visible through what we refer to as miracles. Well, in Buddhism, uh, there's a famous painting that uh, tells a story about how an ox herder follows the path toward enlightenment or his own spiritual awareness. I'm sure you've seen this uh, at times, but maybe it was never explained to you because it's just kind of there in pictures. Now, to the Western mind, it, it, as I said, it might be difficult to at first to see ourselves in the image of this ox herder who is seeking spiritual awareness, which is represented by the ox. Okay. However, once we understand this concept, I think we're going to begin able to see that attaining enlightenment or spiritual awareness is not a passive event. For, you know, for example, um, the first of these pictures depict a man sitting out, setting out on search of an ox. Okay? And then he proceeds to follow the ox by following the footprints in the snow. And then he discovers the ox, and he says, okay, there it is, and he gets ready to catch it. And after this, the man is riding the ox, and he's playing a trumpet. Yes, I've caught the ox, yay, 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 okay? And this picture most likely is depicting that the man has successfully tamed the ox, and he's made peace with it. And then the next picture shows the man alone sitting down, left behind once the ox had left him. Now, the next picture frame shows nothing, suggesting that the, both the ox and the man have now transcended. And the ninth picture out of the ten shows a tree, most likely depicting paradise that the man has achieved through his conquering of the ox. And now the last picture shows him teaching his method to others showing them that, you know, how they too can accomplish what he had. Okay. Now, as previously stated, this, I mean, you'll have to look it up, Google this to get the, the, the picture. Um, but this, uh, this picture story is, uh, is a symbol for a person's path to enlightenment, in which the ox is a metaphor for humanity's struggle, finding their inner self. And uh, the taming of the ox in the story is a depiction of a man coming to terms with his authentic self, which allows him to advance in the path of enlightenment or spiritual awareness. And once he has fulfilled this objective in life, he's at peace, and he transcends into full spiritual awareness. And as a result, his obligation now is to teach his ways to others, aiding them in their path 
to enlightenment or spiritual awareness. You know, earlier uh, this week had a conversation with uh, someone regarding Maslow's uh, hierarchy. And uh, this is uh, another great image that uh, many people are aware of. It's in the shape of a triangle. And, uh, you know, if you've never been aware of Maslow's hierarchy, it's something that um, Maslow set out to just to take a look at uh, our hierarchy of needs, where at the bottom, which, you know, the, the base of the triangle or the base of the pyramid, shall we say, is our, bos- our most basic needs. You know, food, clothing, shelter, just the basic, 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 okay? But then as we keep going, as we go up the uh, pyramid, we now move into um, issues such as security. And then later on, maybe contentment or peace or satisfaction in relationships. In other words, what he is um, demonstrating to us is that once we have found the basics in our lives, we continue on to find meaning and purpose. So what begins with um, you know, having our basic needs met, such as food, shelter, clothing, that then allows us to transcend or go higher up the pyramid, if you will, into thinking about uh, matters of security, matters of inner peace and so forth, shall we say, and then looking at relationships and then our own personal fulfillment and where ultimately we find um, you know, uh, our, our self-awareness or self-realization. And um, I like Maslow's hierarchy. I just think it's limited because um, there's so much more to us than just attaining needs and there's just a vastness to ourselves but Maslow's hierarchy and every other shall we say model that we have out there fits this form fits this structure fits this um, scaffolding this mental scaffolding that we have that sooner or later are we able to transcend it to the point where we're not worried about so much of checking a box to say, okay, am I happy, peaceful, content, and so forth. But we go through life and we are able to have these things because this is now how we live our lives. And we have found our peace. And of course, Maslow's hierarchy didn't point this out. But again, I feel as like once we have reach the top, shall we say, of the the top of the pyramid, we do have an obligation to go back down and to help others find their peace, find how they can meet their needs, how they can grow in their relationships, how they can move towards meaning and purpose in their lives, so that once they find that, then they are able to then come back down the pyramid and help others. And it continues, so on and so on and so on. Okay? So Maslow's hierarchy model is good. It's just, it's it's limited. Because it's, in other words, it, it does remind us of scaffolding. It helps us get to a point. But when we dismantle the scaffolding, what is left but what we have internalized, what we have integrated And truly, that's where a transformation has occurred in us. Well, 
understanding, you know, this whole process uh, is, is really vital to embracing our desire to live authentically. I mean, we, we may not imagine ourselves as herders chasing after an ox, but I do believe that we can appreciate the need to pursue the desires for genuineness in life. And moreover, once we are engaged in the search for our own authentic self and reclaim it for ourselves, we are then obligated to aid others in the quest as well. So, you should know by now, if you've been listening to me for, you know, weeks or months or even going into this, the second year of this, uh, you should know by now that one of my favorite books is The Alchemist. And one of my favorite quotes from the book is that when you want something, the whole universe conspires in helping you to achieve it. Each thing has to transform itself into something better and to acquire a new personal legend until someday the soul of the world becomes the only thing. But you know, later on in the book, there's another great quote that uh, really sums up people's fears that they carry in their hearts, even to this day. Right? And it's when the main character, Santiago, is, is having a discussion with his heart. And this is toward, you know, the end of the book. And uh, he is trying to come with terms with the fears that he feels deeply. And as he's talking to his heart and as he listens to his heart, he then hears his heart say that people are afraid to pursue their most important dreams because they feel they don't deserve them or that they will be unable to achieve them. And then we, their hearts, become fearful just thinking of loved ones who go away forever or of moments that could have been good but weren't or of treasures that might have been found but were forever hidden in the sands. Or, in other words, what dies inside of a person while they live? In the Oglala Lakota tradition, uh, Frank Foolscrow he taught that in order to become holy, that is, one through whom the great spirit could work in and through to heal others, a person must become like a hollow bone. Now, Frank Foolscrow believed that people are not to seek transformation for their own power and honor, but instead to be a pipeline that connects God to the people. And this process of becoming a hollow bone really began when, when people asked God to rid themselves of anything that would impede them in any way, such as doubt or questions or selfishness or reluctance. And as a result, this psycho-spiritually psycho transformed people would then need to see themselves as unobstructed, shall we say, conduits through whom God could work to bless others. And you know, this, this hollow bone uh, image is a powerful symbol for emptying ourselves of everything that hinders, that everything that hinders and impedes the life of God's Spirit at work in our lives. You know, and as we were taught in biology class, bones provide our bodies not only with the physical frame, much in the way the scaffolding does around the building, but also within themselves contains marrow, this, this flexible tissue uh, 
that is responsible for producing blood and supporting the immune system. However, in understanding this concept of becoming a hollow bone, we have to first acknowledge our need to, metaphorically speaking, die to ourselves. And ironically, a hollow bone is both dead in that it doesn't contain any blood or marrow, and yet at the same time, it's alive because it's the Spirit of God flowing freely in and through us for the benefit of others. And this act is not a one-time event, I mean, but rather it's an ongoing process of examining and letting go of ourselves in order to take hold of something better for the sake of humanity. God's speaking all the time. What, what's keeping us from hearing God's voice? You know, but through contemplation, through meditation, we not only need to stop our mind's chatter, you know, that, that monkey mind that's just jumping around all over the place, but also to open our hearts regarding how we see and listen for God. Where do we see God in all things? Are we able to see God in the beauty of a sunset and a sunrise? Do we focus on hearing God's voice in the cries and laughter of others? How do we feel God you know, when we're out and we're amongst the wind and the rain? Do we hear God in the sound of, say, the owl, the eagle, or the hawk, or the birds in the morning? And similarly, we should... Not also look for God in the tears of a child or listen for the voice of God in every heartbreak, but we can also find the voice of God giving us voice to our most devastating losses and pain. Uh, Elie Wiesel, who was a uh, Holocaust survivor, um, uh, he was in a concentration camp for uh, quite some time. Uh, he's the author of the book Night, N-I-G-H-T. And um, I think the copy I have was written somewhere around like early 2000s. And uh, he shares a story about, you know, just we look for God, we cry out for God, and but yet where is God at different moments in our lives? And what does it take for us to see and hear God? And he writes that uh, one day, we came back from work, and we saw three gallows rearing up in the assembly place, three black crows. Roll call. SS were all around us. Machine guns were trained, the traditional ceremony. Three victims in chains, and one of them, the little servant, was a sad-eyed angel. The SS seemed more preoccupied or more disturbed than usual. Now, to hang a young boy in front of thousands of spectators was no light matter, and the head of the camp read the verdict. And all eyes were on this little child. He was lividly pale, almost calm, and he was biting his lips. The gallows threw its shadow over him. However, this time, the lagercapo refused to act as the executioner. And so three SS replaced him. The three victims were mounted together on the chairs. Their necks were placed at the same moment, the same time within the nooses. And long live liberty, cried two adults. But the child was silent. 
Where is God? Where is he? Somebody behind me asked. At a sign from the head of the camp, the three chairs tipped over. Total silence throughout the camp. And on the horizon, the sun was just starting to set. Bear your heads, yelled the head of the camp. His voice was ruckus, and we were all weeping. Cover your heads. Then the march past began. The two adults were no longer alive. Their tongues hung swollen and had a blue tinge to them. But the third rope was still moving. Being so light, the child was still alive. And for more than half an hour, he stayed there, struggling between life and death, dying in slow agony under our eyes. And we had to look him full in the face. And he was still alive when I passed in front of him. His tongue was red, his eyes were not yet glazed. And behind me, I heard the same man asking, Where is God now? And I heard a voice within me answer him, Where is he? Where is God? He is here. He is hanging here on this gallow. I'm Dr. James Houck, and you've been listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. I invite you to spend another hour with me next uh, Friday afternoon, 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, noon Pacific Standard Time, or you may catch these podcasts at your own time and your own leisure. In the meantime, until we spend next Friday together, may you find that peace, may you find that moment in which God captures your attention, and may God hold us firmly and calmly in the palm of God's hands. Take care. Bye-bye. For an answer, or just to leave a thousand comments, or prodding to buy a book by Dr. Hauk, it's all there. Just wander on over to reclaimingauthenticity.com and click around. And we'll see you next Friday at noon Pacific time on PBS Radio TV.